Hello and welcome to a special episode of Shattered Lives Reach Ireland's crime podcast for the Irish Mirror and Irish Daily Star. I'm crime and defence editor Paul Michael O'Toole, going to say you're me, and I'm joined as ever by our crime correspondent Paul Healy. Hello Paul. Hello Mick. So, it will be come as no surprise to anybody that Joseph Posca has been found guilty of the murder of Aisling Murphy. Yeah, I think, although we can't assume the thoughts of everyone, I would say that anyone who sat in that trial for the past 16 days, for the past four weeks, would come to the conclusion, um, if they hadn't come to the conclusion in the first two days, to be honest with you, that he is the murderer. Uh, As he said in his own words, I am the murderer. Uh, He confessed to the murder of Ashley Murphy in hospital but what more evidence do you need? Well, you've got DNA, you've got CCTV, you've got the whole nine yards. Um, an extraordinary case and a momentous day for the family of Ashling Murphy today, now that Mr. Puska has finally been convicted. So he will serve a life sentence. There is only one sentence in Ireland for murder, and that's a mandatory life sentence. Now, we've spoken about this on previous pods, that it's what's called an indeterminate sentence. So a determinate sentence is you could get seven years or nine years and you know that you'll get remission. It'll be normally 25%. It may be what they call enhanced remission of 33%. And then everything's backdated to when they go into custody. But this is an indeterminate sentence. So it's life. Now, we do know a couple of things. At the moment, the average sentence that a lifer serves in Ireland is, I think, 20 years and maybe two months. It does go up. It does seem to go up every year. Remember when I started off a long time ago, people were getting released after seven years. But this is an average. So obviously, if it's an average, some people will serve less than 20 years and some people will serve more. I put it to you, Paul, that it's a given that Puska will serve more than 20 years. Yeah, I think it's a given. It comes down a lot of the your your time in prison comes down to your behavior in prison and how you engage with services and whether you accept uh, your guilt, your culpability. And I think if uh, Puska's behavior in court is anything, any measure to go by, although maybe he'll have a a sudden change of heart and gain a conscience, uh, uh, gain a conscience when he's in prison. But I think he will maintain that he is innocent of this crime for some time. That's not going to help him. Uh, I think just even given the gravity of the crime uh, and and its its nature, its infamous nature, I mean, this is one of these crimes that has affected the whole country. Um, so, yeah, I don't think you're going to see the likes of Puska out uh, for 20 years plus, if not more. Yeah, and if, if I mean, I did speak, I know we did speak about this on a previous pod, the late Brian Lenehan, when he was Justice Minister, so it must have been maybe 2008, uh, he took some of us for lunch, uh, uh, and he spoke about Joe Riley, and he said Joe Riley will serve twenty years. Now, the, the minister he's now deceased. God love him. Uh, I don't think he was too far off. So uh, O'Reilly has done sixteen years, hasn't he? So it's July twenty two thousand and seven. It'll be a while yet before he gets released. But I think it's fair to say Puska is in a, and this is probably the wrong word, but there's a pantheon of killers and murderers who are the tier A, shall we say, who are facing the possibility of the rest of their lives behind bars. And I think he's one of them. I think Graham Dwyer might be one as well. Just because the murders are so infamous. 
Mm. Yeah, it's funny. I'm just thinking as you as you're mentioning those names. You know, it's funny the way that this trial was covered, and uh, um, and in a way, perhaps maybe this is the right way that a trial should be phrased. I mean, it's, this has often been referred to as the Ashling Murphy trial, or mm. the Ashling Murphy case, where the victim's name is the one that's prominent in the coverage. Because I think everybody was affected by the murder of Ashling Murphy, and you know, she was the everyday. Uh, Irish girl, young Irish girl, mm-hmm. whole life ahead of her, a musician, school teacher. Um, she has that Irish name, a huge Irish traditional music background, uh, and from a part of Tullamore, um, which, which celebrates all of that. And so she encompasses many things for many people. I mean, I, I think a lot of people can maybe see their sister or their daughter uh, or their friend, uh, or their school teacher uh, mm-hmm. in Ashling Murphy. And so in a way, the way the media has covered this as well, I think has reflected that in that we've called it the Ashling Murphy trial. So Joseph Puska kind of took a backseat mm-hmm. and, and probably still will, like the coverage over the next couple of days will be all about Ashling, really, not about Joseph Puska. And in a way, maybe that's 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 good. You know, that's great. Maybe that's the way we need to cover it in future. I mean, you're talking about Dwyer and O'Reilly. It would it was all about Graeme Dwyer and Joe O'Reilly and less so about their victims. And um, so, yeah, I, I, maybe that's, maybe that's the way these things are going to be covered in future. Please God, there aren't more cases mm-hmm. like this, because this was probably one of the more random um, things to ever happen. I remember, I will talk about it, I'm sure, but I remember when this happened and just like, I mean, we co- we cover all types of crime, but this, there was just something particularly grotesque and uh, truly evil about, this particular crime and this, the, the pure random nature of it. You know, all murders are bad, but just the, the, the randomness of this, I think, just exacerbated how awful a, a crime it was. I, I find it very upsetting, I have to say. Um, mm-hmm. And I can still remember the day. Maybe, I mean, we, got to hear, we got to hear about it, I think, maybe six o'clock. Mm-hmm. You know, Early uh, on. And yeah. yeah, it was because, uh, yeah, so she was murdered. I was in it around twenty past three, really. Yeah, yeah. So look, I, I think within a couple of hours, we we definitely knew at maybe six o'clock, half six, and obviously, you know, various details come out. And I, I think I remember talking to you about this, Paul. I can remember uh, we had a name, and we knew she was a teacher. And I, I'm, I'm getting very upset thinking about this. But I, one thing I always find very upsetting is, and we have to do it, and we make no apologies. But we we, we find pictures of the deceased. Because pictures are very important because they are the essence of the person. You can it's that old cliche about a picture being a thousand worth a thousand thousand words. And we always strive to get a picture because and you and you and I know that victims' families have often given us pictures because they want the people to see the person. And I remember we 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 got the name in the teacher and I I I found her photograph and we got it ID'd and I just remember looking at her and going, Oh Jesus Christ, that poor girl. Because she was a girl. She's you know, she's a woman. But she was just starting off in her life. And I always find, I don't, I don't know about you, Paul, we never really spoke about this. Do you, not, do you find it upsetting when you find a photograph? Personally, when I find a photograph, I go, I hope it's not her or I hope it's not him. Have you ever done that? Yeah, I mean, not that you, you, you weigh any one particular person over another. But yeah, I suppose when you see photographs of someone so full of life and <clears throat> you can see that with Ashling Murphy, you know, there were, there were videos, I remember I, I actually was only looking at it the other day. There was a video of her with her sister, Amy, um, 
with her violin uh, and um, they're just performing. They're just, and and I, it's like there's something in particular about a video, um, whatever about seeing pictures. It's just you see her so full of life and happy. And I, I think the the social media post was the sisters were were never happier than when they were together and playing music. And um, I think we with that. I mean, we saw that was one of the first things we saw when we we're looking at pictures and videos uh, and and realizing that she was the victim in this case. And it was just so shocking. Um, heroin really you can see the whole you can just see her whole life that was it was just ripped from her um and from her family and then there were photographs of her with her boyfriend i remember and he put up a social media post that, that was ryan um and and he put up a social media post talking about his devastation uh, of losing her and just yeah it just it makes it so real when you see uh, you know, and she was heavily involved in GAA there as yeah. well, and just for part of a huge community. You you could see all of that in the pictures before you even spoke to anybody that knew her. Uh, you could see um, the incredible life that she that she had, and it was only just starting. And then the next day, I think it was the next day, the fourteenth. I was def- definitely down there, um, and we went to Durham National School where she taught, mm. and I, I, I that was very hard because there were lovely people. I think the principal and senior, maybe the vice principal come out and spoke to us and they were absolutely fantastic. But there were kids running around and I remember thinking, God, those poor kids. I wonder if any of them were taught by Miss Murphy. You know, I just, I I, anyway, I, found, I found it very difficult. Do you know what else I found difficult? And this, I found it difficult reading about the case when I wasn't covering it. Does that make sense? So, with you know, we maybe we use a filter of we're professional and we're in the the case and we're tweeting away. But when I was reading your tweets, I, I found something very hard, I have to say, because I'm looking at it through a person and not a, a journalist. D- does that make sense? I and this, as I say, um, you know, she was a young girl and and I and a young Irish girl, and that's why I that's why as I say, she seems to be, you know. <laughs> I mean, not that one person is is the same as another, but but so many people have daughters and sisters, as I say, and friends like Ashling mm-hmm. Murphy, and I think that that's what makes uh, this as harrowing as it is. And then, as I said, the random nature of it, the fact that she was just going out for a run that day. I mean, I'm sure that 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 you know your daughters go out for a run, Mick, I'm sure that other other fathers listening to this know about their daughters going out at night and going for a run and worrying, are they going to come home? This was in the middle of the day, broad daylight. You know, I mean, that's the thing that's kind of hard to even get your head around that. And in a very public place, like you're talking about a public walkway there where there were plenty of people around and plenty of witnesses in this case that were within seconds of the attack. And yet, Josef Puska was able to get her in to the bushes there and attack her in the way that he did and kill her in within the matter of minutes, um, seconds even. And I think even we might talk about this later with all the rumors that were going around the place. Mm-hmm. I think which part didn't of that, help. No, they completely didn't help, and they were completely wrong. Um, and I think people sort of want to see a connection because it's very hard for people to understand that there can be random killings like this. So you so. When we first heard about Miss Murphy, or we first heard about a lady killed on the canal, the first question I remember asking sources was, well, did you know him? Mm-hmm. And I think they got, I was, remember being told, yeah, but possibly we think so, because it's so early and it's so early, very early on, you know, 
maybe there was some connection, but there wasn't. And, you know, there were all these rumours, uh, we can talk about this now, that Aisling had a connection or that Miss Murphy had a connection to Pushkin in some way involving his kids, that she, her kids may have been, his kids may have been at her school and all that sort of stuff. And the, the rumours are doing all the rounds. We were watching them during the trial. This was a random murder. Anne-Marie Lawler, on the opening, said there was no connection between Miss Pusk, Miss Miss Murphy and Joseph Puska. And you, I think you were there when it was said again. It was said a couple of times in the court. There was zero connection. This was a stranger murder. Yeah. And it's very hard for people to accept that. It, uh, yeah, I mean, even, even, even to this day, uh, people on social media were putting up conspiracy theories, unhelpful conspiracy theories in, in, in the midst of this trial, um, not realising they could potentially collapse a trial and putting out said conspiracy theories, by the way, trying to ascertain that there was some sort of connection. Um, now, regardless of whether there was a connection, this is still a horrific murder, um, but there was no connection between the two. And I think that's what made it uh, even more shocking, you know, uh, the nature of it. And we don't know why. Will we ever know why? I think we do. Well, yes, that's that's we, the point. We, well, I, we have to... suspicions as to why. Yes. We'll, only Josef Puskin knows really what happened, and uh, the, you know, as to as to, well, we we know because of a lot of other circumstances, you know, when it happened and where it happened, and that he's responsible for it. But we don't, apart from perhaps maybe the obvious assumption that you would make, the horrible assumption that you would make uh, as to why he did it. Uh, yes, and that's what I'm sort of trying to say that. I think people seek comfort or explanations and whys mm-hmm. for these things. And the truth is, there, I think there is a why. I think it was a sexual oriented or, you know, sexual oriented crime. I think, was it Jenna Stack said he's going to rape her? Was, was it Jenna Stack or Aoife Marin? Jenna Stack uh, believed uh, that Ashling Murphy was being or about to be raped in that moment. Yeah. And that was, and I think she was right. Was hurt by the trial, I, 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 I think that that possibly was the motivation. Um, thank God, uh, that is. I mean, it sounds even strange saying that because look, obviously she was murdered, and 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 obviously fought for her life, and obviously had a horrific death. Um, but the you know, um, there was a pathologist evidence given, and you know, there. I mean, there's some things you don't report, but mm. needless to say. There was no sign of um, any intrusion in relation to that. So obviously, um, Mr. Puska was not successful uh, in sexually assaulting uh, Ashling Murphy. Um, but yeah, I'd say, you know, you could be, in, given his his MO as such, going around following women as he was that day, and certainly what we've been hearing from our sources, the belief is um, that certainly he, he, was, he was looking to rape somebody that day. I, I can say... With certainty that Gardy believed this, that he had rape on his mind that whole day. So I think the motive was sexual. I think Gardy would would believe very strongly, they would be convinced that this was a sexually motivated crime. You're, you're absolutely. Let's get into this, Paul. Um, have you ever seen a more open and shut case? No, I, I mean, I think it's extraordinary and it speaks to the arrogance of Joseph Puska, that you know that this that we, we that we went through a whole trial of this because usually, uh, and you could imagine the scenario. I'm sure it happened in this case where someone is is so banged to rights uh, guilty that their 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 counsel, their solicitors would be saying to them, "Listen, you're better off pleading here." Um, 
but maybe it speaks to the arrogance of Joseph Puska that he brought this to trial. You're you're talking about everything was against him, DNA, CCTV, and his own words, where he actually straight up confessed to the murder and then had the arrogance to, to eventually take the stand himself after basically clearly not being happy with the way he'd been defended throughout the trial. He then thought that his own story, which no one had heard up until the trial, uh, would somehow help him. Um, yeah, I, I think if anything, that was the final nail in the coffin because it was already so many things. And, and I could probably say to you that by the time that Jenna Stack really took the stand, which I think was on the third day, uh, I was convinced of his guilt. Um, but by the time it came to him on the stand, I mean, I think he really, all doubt was erased from anybody's minds. I'm going to say I was convinced of his guilt after Anne-Marie Lawler, who's the senior counsel for the state, the chief prosecutor, after her opening, her opening was fantastic. And Very I was powerful. there for that. And I was privileged to be there for that. And she just laid everything on the, the table for the jury and for us. And it was like we were sitting in the press bench and we were going, this fella is banjaxed. So um, you, you and I, we, and we did sort of hear whispers that he was going to take to the stand. And I think there was a view that the way that the prosecution had been framing things, there was an inevitability that he would take the stand. The natural corollary was if they're saying this, this and this, that he was trying to help her, for example, then really he has to take to the stand. But were you surprised when he took to the witness stand? I, I, I would say, so on the day that Jenna Stack gave her evidence, on the third day, uh, Michael Bowman, senior counsel defending uh, Joseph Puska, said uh, she, he he put it to the witness. So she was describing how she witnessed Joseph Puska on top of Ashling Murphy and how she, she believed uh, Miss Murphy was being attacked. And that's when we heard Michael Bowman say, I put it to you that he was assisting Miss Murphy. And that is the first time that we heard that position. That was Joseph Puska's position, that he was helping her. So that I remember that there was a shocked reaction in the courtroom when that happened, because you mm -hmm. don't get an indication of what the defense's position is. And we were curious as to what, what is his defense going to be in this case? And it was on that day that we heard for the first time that he what he's saying is, I was on top of her. Yeah, that's me that you saw on top of her, but I wasn't killing her. I was actually trying to help her. Well, the second we heard that, we thought, there's only one person who's going to be able to prove that, and it's going to be him. So I think from that moment on, we thought, he has to give evidence. But there was a shift. There was a kind of a paradigm shift towards the end where uh, on the day that he actually did take the witness stand, I can talk about this now, but there was a lot of kerfuffle and panic in the morning time and back and forth between the prosecution and the defense in and out of the courtroom. And then there was discussions with the judge. And it was like, if this is going to go the way that you're now saying it is, then, you know, uh, just be sure that your client is aware of the situation and all of that. So my... It, it's more than a, than a guesstimate. I, 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 my interpretation of what was happening that day was that they had decided not to have him on the stand um, and that there had been a last minute decision, decision then by him. No, no, oh. I'm, ta I'm, I'm taking the stand. I certainly got the impression that he had been talked out of it and then he was almost demanding that he get back on, the, that, he get, that he get on the stand because there seemed to be a lot of panic and confusion uh, and, and the prosecution didn't appear to be overly prepared for the possibility of cross-examining him that day. So I, I got the impression, um, in spite of the fact that we thought it might happen, that it wasn't going to happen. And then he made a last minute decision to get on the witness stand. 
and tell me this, Paul, you were there for, it was, it was over two days that he was given evidence, in direct yeah. evidence and in cross-examination. And people, we got a lot of messages during the trial, and I, I don't answer them because I don't talk about trials when they're on, asking how he looked and everything. And I'll be totally honest with you, I was too busy taking notes to have yeah. a good look at him. I very, very rarely looked at him. How, what was his demeanour like? Firstly, what you maybe looked at him more than me. Your, your type might be better than mine. But um, you probably may have looked at him more because you were at the trial more than me. Uh, you may have got a good eye full of him. So what was your view of him while he was in the dock? And what was your view of him when he was in the witness stand? There's a couple of times where I couldn't help but look at him because mm. I thought that his mannerisms were so bizarre. I mean, you'd look at him for a second and you'd go, is he, is he smiling? You know, and then I, I remember actually I asked a couple of my colleagues because you might not want to lose the run of yourself and think that he's smiling. Several of my colleagues uh, in court uh, noted that he was smiling and smirking his way through the whole trial. Uh, and every time that I would look at him nine times out of 10, he just had this smirk on his face and this I, look of pure arrogance, to be quite honest with you. When he would come out into the courtroom uh, before he would sit down, his family members would be sitting down the back and he would wink at them and smile at them. And just kind of, it looked like he didn't have a care in the world. Never really looked particularly serious. There was only one day where there was a notable change in his demeanor. And that was, so on the 12th day of the trial, he failed to show up. We can now talk about this. Uh, It was said in the absence of the jury uh, that Mr. Puska was sick that day and a sick note had been handed in from Clover Hill Prison. Uh, when he showed up then the next day on the 13th, he looked completely different. So throughout the whole trial, he had his hair tied back. in a. Mm. So p- people will probably see the photographs in the papers from when he was arrested and the description of him, you know, when he was arrested was very different to how he looked in the courtroom because he had a shaved head and he had a beard uh, when he attacked Ashling Murphy. Uh, but in court, he was completely clean shaven and he had long hair, which was tied into a bun. But on the 13th day, he came out with the hair down. The hair bobbin was gone. And to me and to my colleagues who were in the courtroom, it looked as though he had just spent an hour sobbing because I don't know if you, when you see somebody who's been crying, mm-hmm. you can just tell with their face. He just looked like he had been in floods of tears. And that was the only day where there was a notable, complete change in his demeanor uh, and also the way that he appeared, obviously, uh, with the hair down. And I remember a family member, he, he, looked, he waved to a family member looking for a hair bobbin and the prison guard actually said, no, no, there's no way, that's not happening. No, no. And he wasn't Jeez. given the hair bobbin. So that was a bit curious. But that was the only day. Every other day, I thought he looked very confident, smiling and smirking when he was sitting in the dock and then when he was actually on the witness stand, very calm demeanor, um, it's just arrogance. He just displayed arrogance. He displayed the appearance and the charisma of somebody who just firmly believed that the, that the jury would, would find him not guilty. So, so let me ask you this. Did he look under pressure? Look, I'm sure everybody has at one stage in their life lied. Okay, I have, you know, it happens. Right? Or you are you you're in the doo-doo and you're trying to explain and you're thing. So, you know, some of us aren't very good at that, right? Some are. Did he look like a man under pressure when he was coming up with this fairy story? Down. Um, but I, I would say that he he seemed to be telling a story that in some ways seemed rehearsed 
And as Anne-Marie Lawler said to him, you know, you've had 18 months to come up with this story. His response to that, by the way, was, yeah, I have had 18 months to come up with the story. So a lot of his answers were said very confidently. But when you thought about them for half a second, even in the moment after he said it, it was like, well, that's that doesn't make sense. Or that's a direct contradiction of what he just said a second ago. You know, so there was a lot of like... Um, I, I do think the general story was rehearsed in that he was saying I was stabbed uh, in Tullamore and that um, I didn't tell the guards and I, I lied about it being in Blanchestown. But I, I think he, the finer details he hadn't worked out. But his his default answer when he was caught out in his lies was, well, the Jonathan Dowdall excuse. Well, I lied then, but I'm not lying now. That was basically his default. It's like, well, when you've caught me out in a lie, I'll admit that I was lying, but I'm not lying now. That was his get out of jail sort of, although it hasn't got him out of jail, but that seemed to be his um, his approach to the whole thing. So um, I observed him in the case when I could, but I didn't hear him speaking. Does he have a confident voice? Does he have a really weak voice? What's his voice like? He's a quiet voice and he speaks quite quickly. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, the interpreter uh, was struggling to keep up with him, I think, a little bit. That's why, as I say, his story seemed relatively rehearsed like he spent the last couple of months in prison um oh by the way he's been in prison this whole time uh, that's another thing the jury are not mm. uh told you know i mean I, I, they might make assumptions but he, he's actually been on remand in prison this entire time but um yeah it just speaks quite quickly and i'm just i'm just thinking about uh various things and somebody mentioned this to me earlier you saw, you, I saw the CCTV, but it was played for you. Did you see the CCTV of him walking, I think it was, was it a taxi from, from at his parents' house on the night of the murder of Aisling into his parents' house in Crumlin? Did you see, it was a blue car. Do you remember? Um, yes, yes, I do remember right. that, yeah. So you see him walking and he walks quite confidently and strongly and firmly from the car to the house. It's about 15 seconds, so it's good. And he's walking towards the camera, so it's face on, right? Guardy believe he stabbed himself in the in his parents' house. And it's the only logical thing because when the guards from Crumlin, who were first at the house, when they weren't in, he was holding himself. He was not injured when he was walking from that car to his parents' house. At, it was five to twelve, I think, on the twelfth. So the belief would be he—that's when he started concocting his story, and he stabbed himself then. Yeah, and I mean that—that that tallies with the evidence. I mean, it was mm. more or less suggested in the trial uh, because there was a lot of questioning about his injuries and how bad the bleeding was and all of that. Um, he was claiming, where do you start with his claims? But he was claiming that he was attacked in Blanchardstown mm. the night before. So the night of, so a couple of hours after the murder of, of Aisling. Uh, yes, on the 12th, mm-hmm. um, which means that he's saying he went from Tullamore to Blanchardstown, got stabbed in Blanchardstown, went home to Crumlin to his parents. He felt as though he wasn't, injured badly enough that he needed to see a doctor and then that the next day he started feeling well and the ambulance was called then when he got on the stand it was i was stabbed the day of by ashling murphy's murderer and i didn't tell anyone including my parents because i was afraid uh that he might come after me uh was his excuse so it might be worth going drilling down on the evidence he gave you were there for both days because reading your tweets it was 
And I mean this in its literal sense. It was a fantastical story. In other words, for me, it was fantasy. And again, I know we always say this. I think when you're when you're working on a case, when you're working on a case like this, you don't really get that much time to think because you're too busy working. And it's a filter, I think, to protect us and photographers. We see a lot of things, but when you stopped and when you were stopped to think about it, did you go, "This is bullshit"? Yeah, yeah, multiple times. Well, the second I was, I was just explaining to you about the the about him being stabbed. I mean, that was the biggest hole in the story. You know, I mean, you're talking about actual stab wounds here, holes in his stomach. Well, there was a hole in the story. I mean, he was tr- he was trying to make us believe that he was that he told the guards in hospital uh, on the 13th of January, the day after Ashley Murphy was killed, that he was stabbed in Blanchardstown. He was then trying to have us believe that he conveniently forgot the events of the 14th, the day after, where he confessed to the murder of Ashley Murphy, under pressure. He accepted that it's a possibility that he might have said that, but he can't remember it, which uh, that was a part I remember in my head going, well, that's, have we not caught him out there then? Because he's actually sort of saying, I might have confessed to murder and he's just casually forgotten about it. And like, that's a totally normal thing that happens that you casually confess to murder and you forget about it. Then he remembers again uh, that he the interviews that he had with Gardy on the 17th and the 18th in Tullamore Garda station. And he remembers he, when asked about that, he says he just felt like he didn't want to tell the guards the truth. He didn't want to tell his family the truth, uh, that he had allegedly been stabbed by Ashley Murphy's murderer. That for the last 18 months up until he sat on the stand, he was actually the victim of an attack, according to him, that he kept that secret that he decided that that he was the only person who witnessed the murder of Ashling Murphy. And whilst on remand in prison and was charged with her murder, he didn't bring any of this up until right now. I mean, that was that to me was like just, I mean, stop talking because you're, you're you've just hung yourself. Was the thrust of, of the evidence, or did he effectively claim that Miss Murphy saw him being attacked and went over to help him? Because I was just I was slightly confused by that. He was saying that uh, he came up to this flyover at the N52 by Digby after crossing Digby Bridge and that this fella came out of nowhere with a face mask on, uh, that he shouted at him, that he uh, abused him in some way verbally, but he didn't fully understand him, that he knocked him off his bike. This is another thing, by the way. He said uh, that he was walking with the bike, but then he said this guy knocked him off the bike. So the story wasn't consistent. This, this is what I mean. He had a rehearsed story, but he would trip himself up in his own story. This guy knocked him off the bike. Then he says, Ashling Murphy appeared like an apparition uh, and started talking to him uh, while he was on the ground, while this guy was on top of him. And then this guy got up off him, went after her. And while he was there with three bull, uh, stab wounds, uh, he managed to stand up go over, peek into the bushes, see this guy attacking her. This guy runs off. He goes over and he looks at her and he says that he got her scarf and that he put the scarf around her neck and that he tried to save her. Well, then cross-examination is put to him. So then you knew she was dying. You knew she'd been the victim of an attack. You knew that you knew that she was dying there in front of you and you watched her die. And he, he, his, like, rather than having a normal human response to that, like, oh, like, you know, like, I mean, if he, if he was completely innocent, why didn't he call the guards or anything like that? 
he said, he basically said that he did know she was dying. He said he knew she was dying and that he ran away. He jumped into some fields Mm. and then got into a ditch and passed out for three or four hours. And then when he woke up, he saw the Garda sirens, the blue lights and sirens. And his next choice was to go in the opposite direction of the blue lights and sirens. Again, this is all totally, completely normal behavior, supposedly, for somebody who is the victim of a crime and the only witness to a murder. And and there's a couple of things that, that jumped out at me when he's given, or when there was evidence given about what he said happened to him in Blanchardstown. And it's always the description, right? If you notice, it was 1.8 metres. So I, I'm 1.74. So average height, basically, right? So five foot eight, five foot nine, dressed in dark clothing. You could give one description. It's always, well, you know, it was normal height and stuff because that's because they, they can't process something and they can't make something up and they can't, crucially, they can't remember it. So what you said yeah. there jumped out at me about he was on a bike, he was wheeling the bike and then he was off the bike. So when you're lying, you and this is why I, I'm particularly crap at it, you have to remember things. So he couldn't remember what he was lying about. Yeah. Uh, and when he would be almost thrown a ball, he'd take it, you know, like, I mean, it, he had a version of, so it was put to him in cross-examination about, so when, so after he he did all of what I've just explained to you, what he said he did, he ran to a family friend and he asked for a lift home. And the evidence that the court heard was that when the family friend brought him to his home in Mukla, he asked him to slow down. Uh, so he said in his own evidence to the court uh, that he asked him to slow down because he thought that Ashling Murphy's killer, the person who'd attacked him, might be there in waiting for him. And then the prosecuting barrister, Anne-Marie Lawler, said, well, were you not concerned about the guards being there because a murder had just happened and that they might be looking for you and because your bike was at the scene? And he kind of jumped on that, like, unexpectedly, because this didn't help him, but he went, well, yeah, that's the reason. Uh, so suddenly he had a... a, a no, I wasn't because I was concerned that the killer would be waiting there for me. It's because I was concerned that the guards might be there waiting for me. So he, he he admitted that quite easily in cross-examination. And I think in his own arrogant mind, he thought that that was helping him. If anything, that actually was even worsening his case even further because he was acknowledging, well, actually, when I just told you a second ago the reason why I asked him to slow down and then you offered an alternative theory, that's actually the reason. So he, he was just caught up in a web of, of of his own lies. Just what interesting thing. He did say that he, he came to after several hours in a ditch. Mm. See, I wonder, we know that he was on CCTV from nine o'clock that night in Tullamore. And it's it's sort of quite close to where he had been around Tesco, where he'd been following these two other women earlier about two o'clock. So from... Half three to nine o'clock, he was somewhere. And it was obviously, he was obviously in, in the Tullermore area. So he must have been laying low for six hours, really, because he went to that fella's house just about nine o'clock, uh, Peter. So he was somewhere, yeah. obviously, because he had to get a lift home. I wonder where he was. It's a curious thing, and we don't really know. Uh, we only have his version of events, which is that he supposedly passed out in a drain uh, for three or four hours. Maybe he was hiding in the drain for three or four hours. Um, we don't know. I recall that there were two witnesses that spoke to uh, to seeing him uh, near the recycling plant hunched over. That's another thing. Uh, there were several things that he gave in his own evidence that mm. I felt like he'd come up with after hearing in the trial. 
So he'd heard two people say that. So then he said, uh, he had an explanation for, I was hunched over because I was in pain because I'd been stabbed. So he, he, he kind of came up with theories for each piece of evidence that he'd heard over the last 13 or whatever days on the spot. Yes, that was, that, that, if I recall, that was a lady who was going, she was working, but she was a student and she was going to print stuff out. So um, that, I think it was about half seven. And that was, I think that was near the college. So it was still in the centre of Tullamore. Basically, yeah. and it's, it's near, do you remember the, the recycling bin? That was an, an issue because I, I can remember at the time that they took that recycling bin because they were looking for the weapon. And that that's that's maybe we should talk about this. This is another uh, conspiracy or, or whatever that about you know people not knowing about this, the stabbing. We on the the week of the murder, our, one of our front page stories was that they were looking for the murder weapon, and we yeah. knew that the water unit was in the air. We we saw them, uh, and we knew that the recycling bin that I was speaking about had been taken away because I think we were there. I think we were there when it was taken away. So. Uh, we would have, um, how can I put this? We, we would have had a belief that a weapon was used, a knife was used, and, and that the, the guards were looking for it. So there was no big conspiracy yet, another conspiracy doing the rounds. But I mean, we definitely, one of our, I think on the 16th, maybe a couple of days later, was that they were looking for the murder weapon. So yes. we, we can put that to bed as well, that we were part of some big grand conspiracy. If only people knew the truth about journalism, and it's this mm. guards don't tell us things. They try right. not to tell us things. Uh, and by the way, just on that, uh, you know, there was a conspiracy theory of, you know, why the media uh, reported her death in the manner in which it was reported, which, I mean, there was a theory that um, Ashley Murphy had been strangled. Yeah. And there was a suspicion of that. There was actually a, a legitimate suspicion of that. Um, and it came up in the trial uh, that uh, the, patho- the pathologist who gave evidence said that there was uh, possibly compression marks, but the the cause of her death ultimately was the 11 Mm. stab wounds. But as you say, guards don't have to speak to journalists. And it's incredible how, I suppose, tight that information was kept because that came out in the trial. No one reported, to my knowledge, uh, that Ashley Murphy was stabbed 11 times. You know, no. so that 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 de- the the key detail of the investigation was kept very much uh, tight and under wraps, um, in spite of. And, and look, I'll be honest. We we, our, our I think my story at the time said she'd possibly been stabbed, um, so we didn't we we did not know that her cause of death was was stabbed. I have to, I have to be honest about that. Again, we have to find stuff sort of despite. You know, we have to, it's not a battle every day to find information. So we had a certain level of knowledge, but we didn't know, we didn't know, but we knew that she had, that there had been a knife or a bladed weapon used in the attack and that they were looking yes. for it. Yeah, sorry, to be, we knew that, but we didn't know the finer details no. of the 11 stab wounds and that. But um, look, you know, people come up with conspiracy theories in the absence mm-hmm. of the facts, you know, unfortunately, sadly. And, um, that, and sorry, just, and the reason that the conspiracy theories fester is because once someone is appears in court, for us, the shutters come down. You can say deadly squat, right? But nature abhors the vacuum and people will. Like, do you remember at the time that there was a, a rumour that a Syrian asylum seeker had handed himself in? Yeah. And yeah, it was no, doing the rounds everywhere on WhatsApp. Mm. And it was complete nonsense. I, I I think to be like this, this was huge. I just want to kind of take back, 
us back to the just the day that this happened and the days following it and just what it was like reporting on it because this was insanity. I've never mm. experienced anything like this in my career. Uh, this was the biggest story that I probably have ever covered. Um, biggest crime story that certainly that I that I've covered mm-hmm. in recent years. I don't know about you, Mick. I'm sure you've covered some of the big ones, but this was huge. But uh, I say that because the reaction to Ashley Murphy's death was it was extraordinary, and I think as a result of that, the guards were under a serious, serious amount of pressure. And uh, I, I just want to take people behind the scenes to the insanity of this. But they they were, were I mean, some people have criticised the guards because of this, which I think is extraordinary because they were just doing their dogged work to get the guy as quick as they could. And unfortunately, they arrested the wrong man. Um, now, evidence came out in the trial about this, but the description of the suspect did match a particular individual who was mm. of interest to the guards. It's not like he was a complete nobody. He was somebody of interest to the guards. And this person was completely cleared, has no involvement in the murder of Ashley Murphy whatsoever. But in those key 24 hours, as you know, Mick, they have to do what they have to do. And they questioned this man they had reason to question this man, um, and he was ultimately released. Now that was a bombshell for us because I have never, I've never experienced anything like this, where you are covering something, you've got somebody under arrest, and it's coming right up to the eleventh hour before we're about to go to print, where our paper is going to bed for the night, and we have the story, the headline, everything. And I, 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 I think you're going to tell me now in a second, but I certainly know that there was a discussion about naming this individual the next day as well, that he was the person under arrest. And then all of a sudden, at 10 o'clock at night, we're told something's going to happen here, hold off printing, and the individual was released. Yes, it was. It's, it's happened occasionally to me, but it was. And I've had to ring my, our desk and say, hold the front page, right? Maybe five times in my career. That was a hold the front page moment because we did get an indication around 10 o'clock. And do you remember we were all talking about this going, we, we, we weren't naming anybody, but there was certain bits of information we were going to lay off on. And the, I'd written the story. story was grand. It was ready to rock and roll. And we got an indication, maybe I think you're right about 10 o'clock. So we're going, to, what the hell? Okay, it's going to be something big. And, but it was 5 to 11 when we got the confirmation, the guards issued a press release and it was, this was a oh my God moment. It was, it was, it was frenzied. And um, there's somebody who I think did a massive favour and a massive service to journalism because if, 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 if all the papers had various angles and if that, we didn't know about that man being exculpated and released, uh, it would have been catastrophic for an awful lot of papers. Is that fair? It would have been, and it would have been... Somewhat catastrophic to the Garda investigation as well. So it didn't mm-hmm. help any. It didn't help anybody the situation. But I, I think with all the facts now that we've heard and and the the absolute frenzied nature of the attack and the panic that was happening in Tullamore and the national attention on it, I think the guards were under a certain level of pressure. And unfortunately, this man, uh, he he fit the description of he the did. suspect. I mean, it was uncanny. But he, uh, there's no connection whatsoever. There's no suggestion of any involvement. But it, but there was an incredible likeness. And a reason for arresting him that day. Yes, and Henri Lawler was very keen to point this out. I don't want to misquote her, but it was effectively, it was a righteous arrest. Mm. 
Yeah. You know, she did defend the arrest and there were valid reasons for that arrest. I just want to point out one more thing. It's only when you, you sent me all the notes or your, your day by day thing. And just something just jumped out at me because you weren't there for it, but I was. He was the guard who arrested him was detective at the hospital in St. James's was yeah. Detective Sergeant David Scahill. Yes. And okay. he gave evidence. Yeah. And he gave evidence, right? And he, he and he brought him down to Tullamore and you know everything. Detective Sergeant David Scal was the third guard on the scene. Wow, yeah. And yeah, I've just seen was. your notes. He was. Because there was it started, uh, Detective Tom Dunn, another detective guard, uh, mm. and David Scal, and he gave evidence. I think he, he he tried to save her as well. I was just reading your yeah. notes very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. But isn't that, I found that really wonderful that they said, you're charging him. Mm. Or you're saw, arresting him. Saw, saw it through, yeah, saw it yeah, through to the saw end. It through. And I, yeah. I, I'd say for many of the guys in this case and the incredible work that they've done, it was, it was probably incredibly personal for them and important for them that they got the right man. And they did get the right man, ultimately. I mean, it, the day after, uh, literally the day after um, this person had been released, they got Joseph Buske in the hospital through extraordinary circumstances in its own right. I even remember when we were hearing yeah. Um, they've got this fella in hospital. He's saying he was the victim of an attack in Blanchardstown, but they're looking at him for Tullamore. I mean, it, it's just extraordinary, the whole thing. But I, I, I think I was speaking to the extraordinary circumstances of the whole of the whole the, that couple of days. And people might recall when they finally charged Joseph Buska and they brought him uh, into the court that night. And it was a late night appearance. The absolute frenzy was unbelievable. There were hundreds and hundreds of people on the streets and they crowded their way all around the courtroom and utter madness had just descended on the area. It really showed you the visceral anger that this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, the reaction that it got from people, the, the the anger at the murder of Miss Murphy. Now, justice had to be seen to be done. At that point in time, people were nearly willing to tear Joseph Puska apart before he'd even been charged, before he even got into the courtroom. I remember filming it. I remember standing at the top of the steps and I just had this instinct that I'm going to have to take the camera out because it didn't know what was going to happen. But I remember when they took him out of the van, they were screaming and shouting at him. But it was particularly after he was charged and they brought him back down the steps. And um, I mean, there were people going for him. Mm-hmm. And the guards were quite shaken in their own right because they had a duty of care. Obviously, they had to get him into the van and get him to prison. Um, and I remember there were people there that legitimately would have beaten the absolute crap out of him, I'd say, had they got their hands on him. And it was just, I mean, that showed you the reaction that it had within the community and within the nation, like just the reaction to this murder. And then it also kind of paints the picture of the pressure that the guards were under. In spite of all that, everything that I've heard the last 16 days and everything that you've heard, I'm sure, shows you the meticulous nature of the case, the level and the breadth of evidence that they had against them, in spite of all that pressure. Um, and in spite of the fact that they didn't even recover the murder weapon, they had his DNA under the fingernails, they had him on CCTV, and they had his confession, a, a breadth of evidence and witnesses in the case. Um, yeah, I just can't imagine the pressure that they were under it, it, with, with the weight of all of that on top of them. I think it was, I think maybe we should speak to this. I thought it was a meticulous investigation. It really, really was. And, you know, even people who made cameo appearances. I mean, I've done a piece in, in the Star in the Mirror about uh, Inspector Shane McCartan, who yeah. wasn't even part of the investigation team. But it's just, I mean, I, I, I know somebody who knows him and he, he said to me, I wish we had more Shane McCartans. He's a fantastic detective. And I thought that was a great line. I'm not, I, I wonder... He effectively was the first person to nominate Puska because he he put two and two together. Uh, Gardy Newman, yeah. Connor Newman, and Paul McDonald came back after interviewing Puska in St James. Going, this fella's not right. 
Mm-hmm. And it was then Detective Sergeant Shane McCartan, now Inspector McCartan, who went, all right, hold on. And obviously he'd heard the news and he put two and two together. And you know what? He got four. And that, because we know, I think we know that Puska doesn't have a record in Ireland. It wasn't known yeah. to Gardy. Gardy yeah. were had a picture of Puska. They didn't know it was Puska. They were asking people, they were asking colleagues, who is this? Do we anybody know who this is? And that's a sign that he wasn't known to them. So, uh, Shane McCartan did a fantastic piece of detective work there. But the whole unit, the whole team, Tullamore, Gardy from Burr were brought in, the technical bureau, everybody. And for me, it was a really the NBCI people like uh, Maria Castles and Parry Canley. They weren't they interviewing yes. him? Uh, interviewed him. Just, it was meticulous. And they nailed him. And they really, really nailed him. Yeah, and and the prosecution in this case, prosecuting barrister Anne Marie Lawler, also incredible and and mm-hmm. forensic in her detail and in her cross examination of Joseph Puska, uh, I really fell for her in that moment where she said, "I have a duty of care here. I have," and she put it to him that there was no man that he made up, and that uh, she had to say that that horrible line really, but she had to. I think she was trying to just really hit him as hard as she could. You stabbed Ashling Murphy 11 times and you slit her throat and you watched her die. Uh, and he had the brazen neck on him to just, and he, he was kind of sitting back in the chair, sat back in the chair like this the whole time. And he just said, no, it wasn't me. Um, but it was. I mean, yeah, but it was. Um, and I just, I also want to just compliment um, the family of Ashling Murphy, their, their stoic uh nature the fact that they sat in the trial every single day i had someone ask me about this recently like and they they kind of said i I don't know how i could do that but i think it's important for a family to see this process through it was clearly important for the family of ashley murphy to sit there and face him every day the man they probably knew from murdered their their daughter Uh, her parents were there every day her boyfriend ryan casey was there every day and there were very, very difficult moments where I mm-hmm. kind of thought a family shouldn't have to hear this. No one should have to hear this. But they sat through it all. One day sticks out for me. Uh, and that was the day that the uh, pathologist, Dr. Uh, Sally Ann Collis, gave her evidence and went into forensic detail on how Ashling Murphy died. And uh, the parents sat there through all of that. And I can recall... Um, I, I mean, we were sitting in front of the family. I can mm. recall Ashling's father uh, was directly behind me and I, he was just in bits. Like, I mean, he was crying. He was very, very emotional for him to hear that evidence, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm sure I'm sure every day was difficult. But that day in particular was very, very hard just for a reporter to hear, let alone um, you know the family were there hearing this detail for the, a lot of it for the first time. Um, and that it was obviously important for them to, to hear it nonetheless. Yeah, and well, I think it was the same day these two things happened in the same day. I think um, some of, well, all of Miss Murphy's clothing was had been itemised by the mm. forensics guard from the Technical Bureau. And I remember she had a, it was a GAA top, a GAA tracksuit sort of top. And I remember it was green and blue. And I remember that being held up. And I you could hear it was affecting the people behind. Oh, you're right. They were, they were behind me. I was on that day, and then another time, there was CCTV footage of Miss Murphy walking from her school to her car, and various things. And then there was this, and then there's CCTV footage of her walking to her death, 
it was she parked at at the Dangan Road car park, went over the bridge, and then the second bridge, and was walking yeah. along the canal, and there was just a still over. Yeah, and I can see the, the, the you know the pink pub bobble hat, yeah. and that was that was tough. That was really really tough. Well, yeah, I, I, that was shown again. Um, there was a particular part where uh, the CCTV images were were kind of shown in a compilation, and that image was shown uh, again. And I can recall um, Ashley Murphy's mother uh, w- was very emotional at that point in time; was crying. Uh, it was very difficult. I remember uh, Mr. Justice Hunt even noted it uh, that it was very difficult for the family, and uh, he really felt for the family in that moment. In 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 seeing now, he said that in the absence of the jury at the time. But uh, emotions were very, very high. Seeing that image of Ashley Murphy, likely the last uh, mm-hmm. image of her before she went to her death. Uh, another moment which we didn't really get to discuss was there was a witness who was being followed by Joseph Puska and could well have been um, uh, his victim. Uh, he was clearly stalking for anyone at that point in time because we saw footage of him following two women. One of the women wasn't even aware she was being followed, but this lady, Anne-Marie Kelly, knew and felt she was being followed and uh, said he was staring at her in an intimidating way. And she is very likely uh, the last person to have seen Ashling Murphy alive. And she told how she met a woman with a with the pink hat and how she, uh, Ashling Murphy went down and petted her dog and how she had a nice conversation with her and said she was a very pleasant young girl. I mean, it's it was just so harrowing to hear in the context. I mean, obviously everything is heard just kind of in sequence and not really, the emotion doesn't come into it, but it dawned on me and probably others in the courtroom that this lady was describing meeting Ashling Murphy moments before she was set upon by Osef Puska, having herself been followed by Osef Puska and in, in another set of events could easily have been her vic- his victim herself. Uh, it was just, just very harrowing uh, stuff to hear. Terrible. But there was justice today anyway. Yes, it was. And um, yeah, I... I <laughs> Yeah, I mean, cases get to you, but this one's really got to me covering it. I really, really feel for the family of Ashling Murphy in this. I hope that this does feel like justice. I know that in a way it probably doesn't, uh, like that no amount of years, no amount of time could ever bring back their daughter and um, Ryan's partner and uh, their friend. And But uh, it's important that people get justice in the courts and a, f- a sense of closure. And I think I imagine a lot of this might be a sense of closure for the family in one sense, and a closing of the book, um, as hor- as awful as it was. Um, I hope that they are able to live in some, have some sense of closure from this and have some sense of peace from this. Um, yeah, so uh, may he rot, <laughs> is all I would say. And I, I, I share your hope and I do believe... It'll be an awful long time before Josef Puska walks the streets. So here's to Aisling and to her family. And thank you to, to uh, everyone for following along our coverage through all of this. Uh, we may possibly do another pod, but uh, this this might be our last one. We'll see how things go. Um, but if not, we'll maybe talk to you in the new year. We're going to take a little bit of a break, I think. Mick, what do you reckon? I, I, I Look, it, it, we do this... It's fantastic and it's brilliant and it's a, a new form of journalism, but we do it on top of our ordinary journalism. So we tweet, we do two stories a day, we come back, we rush, we do it in our cars, we're all over the place. I'm doing it from the house, you're doing it from your house. We're up the high doors, we say up north. So 
Look, we might do maybe one or two more, but I think we are going to take a break for a while. But Paul, thank you on a personal level. It's been great uh, doing this with you. And um, it's been wonderful. And also to Kieran, who's gone but not forgotten. Yeah, thanks to you, Mick. And thanks to Kieran. Kieran, he's not gone, gone. He no, is. No, he no, is. <laughs> Made it sound like he's, well, if he is listening, which fair play to you, Kieran, if you actually are still listening to us. But uh, thanks very much for everything. And thank you, Mick, for putting up with me and, uh, and for your coverage of this as well, your fantastic coverage of the trial. Um, so, and thanks to our listeners. The most important people, thanks to our listeners.